doing that for a that's, while. That's the better way to do it. We've we really, in all of the episodes we ever did, we only had to cut a little bit of stuff because somebody was drunk. Welcome to the Crossing the Stream podcast. I'm Eric. And I'm Jesse. And this today with us is Michael Lydiard. Yes, hello. Hi, how are you today? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Welcome to the first episode back with guests since we rebooted and changed our lovely name. Okay, so what was it before? A funny thing happened on the way to the podcast. Which is a horrible name. Way too long. It's, it's not even a good name. <laughs> well, but I, I think crossing the, the stream name. sounds I great. The name. Yeah, a little bit. I got my waiting uh, pants on, so we're ready to rock this. this waiting? Uh, are those actually swim shorts? No, those, these are lacrosse shorts. Oh, okay. Um, they're the most comfortable attire I can wear on a, on a podcast. That's fair. It's uh, muggy out for, I don't know, the time of year that it is. Yeah. Yesterday was like 27 degrees yeah, out. Beautiful day yesterday. Mm-hmm. Nice it day was. for a walk if you're out and about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One tradition that I'm going to carry through is I always ask our guests to describe themselves because they would do it better than I ever would. So why, what do you do professionally? How would you yeah. describe your, your career and what you do and what makes you tick? Sure. Well, I think that really just starts back to the decision to um, get into law. So I am a, a lawyer. I'm practicing in St. Catharines. Um, I opened up my own practice, which means I'm a, I'm a solo lawyer, um, although I do have legal clerks. Um, so basically, once you decide you want to go to law school, you've got to take the steps that are um, involved with that. And obviously, that means that you've got to be um, committed to the LSAT and, right. and get through the, uh, get through the, uh, the law program. And um, once you have your Juris Doctor, uh, you're looking for um, articling. In my position, I actually took a program. Uh, out of Ryerson University, the law practice program, uh, which was a, a modified articling uh, style program. So as far as who I am right now, certainly I'm, I'm uh, fully, uh, you know, in the practice of law. And that's, that's part of what, um, you know, my daily grind is. But outside of that, it's um, nothing's really changed in terms of uh, what I enjoyed about growing up in Niagara to begin with. So um, I think uh, that's, that's been positive as well to be able to run a business in a place where um, I have a network of people that I've, I've always been able to maintain and now I'm, I'm growing that work network so um, yeah I think that's pretty much captures uh, I haven't really described to you what I do for yeah. my for my the, job the but first that, thing that I yeah. want to do is what kind of law do you practice? yeah what law do I practice well um, it's important to state that every licensed lawyer in uh, in Canada I should say uh, with, with the exception of Quebec if you have your common law um, juris doctor um, you're capable of practicing any practice area. So right now, my current focus is on mostly transactional work. So when I say transactional work, that's uh, anything from uh, residential transaction purchases, sales, refinances, um, but also involving other commercial uh, dealings, whether that's uh, asset purchases, share purchases. So that's working with businesses as well. Um, and so I meet people on a you know regular basis. My clients will come in for... I'm signing legal documents, but 
that's also transitioned a little bit with the COVID measures. Um, I've, I've increased my flexibility to allow people to, uh, to meet digitally and, um, you know, virtually and meet on Zoom and sign documents remotely. Um, it, it's at their preference. I try to make it um, as reasonable for people. I think, um, you know, you have to take out of a, uh, out of an important, you know, an appointment what you find most valuable. And a lot of people want to meet in person. So, um, you know, that's been, uh, you know, part of my practice that I, I try to focus on is giving people that level, you know, that level of comfort, whether it's a residential purchase and sale, which for most people is a, is a huge deal. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's the biggest decision that they've made, um, a lot of them financially. So uh, meeting in person to give that, that uh, overview of the process is something that I value. So, um, But uh, yeah, it's been uh, it's the second full year of business. So I'm, I'm in my third year of practice now, which um, as a lawyer, I was called in 2018, meaning at that point I could start my own, my own business. And I did so in 2019. So... Uh, over the last two years, I've seen um, definitely uh, the, a boom in real estate, which mm-hmm. is interesting um, because, you know, affordability is always at the top of people's minds when they're moving into a, a location. And oh, that's yeah. why, see, you know, seeing the rise in prices is really intimidating for people, which you got to get financial you know, advice and work with somebody, whether it's your, uh, you know, a mortgage advisor, a real estate professional, understand the industry, because if you haven't had a chance to get into the market, um, you really want to start doing some some research now because um, I'm not sure if it's going to go down in prices. It's hard to say. Yeah, there's speculation that there's some kind of real estate bubble at this point, but then I see some articles now and then that to the contrary, saying that things are going to keep going up. And I feel like people inf- don't really know. No, <laughs> although it seems like there's a few things that are almost for sure at this point, like inflation is going like we already see grocery prices and a lot of things scaling up really yeah. quickly right now yeah. just because we've devalued our currency quite a bit since this pandemic since we've been you know providing monetary relief to many people and, and things like that so there's definitely a lot of risk for that and that could keep maybe the prices high for a little bit longer have you seen i guess a trend like specifically very recently about uh, maybe residential stuff increasing or and maybe like has the acquisition of like business properties gone up or down with it or yeah yeah my the trend that i've seen i mean it's tough for me to say because as a growing business um i'm I'm increasing my network so i know overall volume um when you talk about volume there's always um a limit on the number of houses that are available at any one time and so the number of listings that are available to you um, if there's tons of demand, of course, that's driving your prices. And that's what we're seeing. So we are seeing a lot of investment. You talked about business acquisition. Well, mm-hmm. uh, it's important to state that um, you can own real estate, residential real estate, as a, as a company, as a corporation uh, in Ontario. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure if that's the case across the country. Um, but, I, you know, just from my experience in, in Ontario, it's totally permissible. Um, so beyond that, as a business acquisition, you have investments. So you have people who are purchasing... Um, residential properties um, with the, with the purpose of renting them out. So when you have people with you know excess um, funds, meaning that they're looking either to invest that in the stock market or looking to um, you know put that into some other form of, of investment, um, when it comes to real estate, that is an option for them: duplexes, triplexes, but also single-family residential. 
Um, so the, the question is, is that if you know there's this excess um, capital that individuals are, are putting into the residential market, um, and that's driving residential prices, um, you know, are we doing enough actually to to really help first-time home buyers? Because I think, um, you know, at that point. There's already, an, you know, there is an advantage for people who know the game mm-hmm. and they're willing to outbid. And I think that's the stress that a lot of people are feeling um, when they're up against that. Things I see online, a lot of people have already given up on the concept of home ownership, especially if they're from like a big city. They just pass it off as something that they will never be able to do. Yeah. I, th- I think a lot of people don't really research it to the point where like they don't go and see if they can get a loan or see what the banks say. That's usually the first step that I, I've heard anyways, and that's what I've done. Yeah, the houses that I've purchased. Yeah, and it's great that you, you, you well, <laughs> not great, but it's interesting that you say that because it is something that I think is uh, important, people giving up on the concept of ownership. Um, and, uh, you know, there was a, a conversation recently um, where, uh, you know, an individual had made this statement publicly. Uh, I believe it was the Canadian Mortgage Housing Corporation, and he was let go, um, basically saying, well, home ownership really is a thing of the past. Which I think that's really upsetting to say that of um, because uh, I understand that there's a lot of mobility. People have short-term contracts. Their employment is precarious, which maybe that, that sort of doubles down on this opinion that even if I wanted to own, my job isn't stable enough for me to want to make the mortgage investment, you know, the mortgage commitment. But I think if you are going to counter, if you're going to counter that fear, you need to be aware of what your mortgage penalties are. So uh, don't write off the concept of home ownership no. just because it's intimidating. Uh, you have to know the consequences in, uh, of, of breaking a mortgage. So sure, I mean, if you buy a house and you have to sell it in six months because you've, your employment has changed, all right, well, just know what's involved mm-hmm. and know the, the potential risk to you because it might not be as bad as you think. Right. And I think the attitude of giving up on that is just another way that people are kind of giving in to corporations because there are corporations that buy lots of houses. For instance, when I was looking for a house in Welland, I sometimes stumbled upon ones that were for sale where the owner owned like 60 houses Mm -hmm. in the area and they were just doing it as a business thing and they were selling off one of them. So like That's that's common in Welland because of all the student homes too. And if you give up on the idea of buying any of these homes and you just rent, well, now you're just empowering people that are already big to a a large degree unless you rent from like a landlord that just has the one property or something like that. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. When you think of who's the person that's in, in the best position to rent, well, of course, you know, there are situations where people are just transitioning in, they're looking for their forever home, or they're looking for um, an interim solution because they've relocated um, students as well. So rental has its place, absolutely. And even single family home uh, residential, mm-hmm. there is a place. But to, to sort of second your point, um, I mean, I, 60 residential homes, I've, I've never seen that, but I take it that that is absolutely, I mean, it's possible. So the fact that it's possible means, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's possible that it's happened. Um, and when you look at an area like Welland, the question becomes, okay, well, if somebody isn't in, uh, you know, capable of taking a home, putting some work into it, and then selling it for a profit, well, that's not so bad because we want people to put, you know, um, keep the economy going, buying materials, uh, getting contractors, and uh, whether they do it themselves. I mean, it's a form of the economy. So, um, but then the question becomes, at what point are you pricing other people out, uh, and local people who have been renting for some time? and are watching their home ownership opportunities seem to fizzle because of the appreciation and the value. So there is a tension there for sure. Mm-hmm. I guess the, the main thing that didn't, that was, I guess, the most advantage for myself and my wife is we weren't really afraid of a fixer-upper, and there's lots of people like us out there. So 
Yeah. The two houses that we have, one is a duplex that we rent out here in Welland, and one is in Niagara Falls. Mm -hmm. They both needed some work, and especially the one in Welland. We've we've put quite a lot of work into that house at this point, not even for the purpose of flipping it, but just to make it more of a a nice place for people to rent. Mm -hmm. So if you're not afraid of doing that work, you can look at the lower end of the market. Absolutely, and you have to. And even if even if you're not particularly, um, you know, involved in a trade yourself, or you're not sure, I mean, if you're going to be purchasing a house, just expect that there might be some things that aren't perfect with it, mm-hmm. and don't let that stop you. And if, if you can get an inspection too, you can you can figure out what things are critical. Like if the whole house is on an angle or something like that, and it's pretty much unfixable as far as the framing or the foundation or something goes, you should know that. But there's other things like you know the, the kitchen's ugly. Yeah, you can redo well, a kitchen. Sure. You can get a contractor to, to do, do a kitchen for you. So something Some that. something that's happened uh, that I've seen with the uh, with the competitiveness of the industry is a lot of people are waiving their home inspection. Yes, and it's something be fast. Yeah, yeah, and and so they're waiving their home inspection. They're being pressured to waive conditions for financing. And what a condition for financing is, of course, is you're giving um, the seller uh, a 14 day window where you're saying, okay, I'm going to make an offer on your home. But I want to not only do an inspection in some situations, but also make sure that I've got my mortgage lined up. Mm-hmm. So now you basically have to show up to a lot of these um, uh, listings, and you have to be able to say, I'm already pre-approved, I'm confident in my uh, you know, ability to finance, and I know what mortgage amount I need based upon the, the offer that I'm making. So when people waive these types of conditions, that's a whole added stress too. Um, because they don't get that wiggle room. If you find something on a home inspection, uh, which is a, a defect that's material to your decision, for instance, the wiring is, uh, I don't know, aluminum versus copper or something. Yeah, and like you got to revolve it out and or now, something. Yeah, so now yeah. you're getting advice from the home inspector to say, hey, this breaker is old, it's got to be redone, this appliance here, this, you know, things that would ordinarily influence your uh, a decision to make an offer at a certain price. Mm-hmm. You're waiving that. And then if you find these issues after you've already secured the deal, the question is, well, if the situation didn't change, meaning it was like that when you made the offer, you're going to have a real uphill battle saying Mm -hmm. I'm entitled to a price abatement or reduction or some compensation. And, uh, you know, the the challenge legally for that is, okay, well, um, but you could have done an inspection. And these are things that, you know, Homes are bought, resold, resold. The seller might not even have any awareness of, course not. of, of some of the issues that are actually uh, you know, facing the home. Or leave it up to your due diligence and buyer caveat emptor, buyer beware. Yeah, sometimes it's really contextual too. Like when I got my second house, we ha- I don't think we got an inspection, but we knew- had a pretty good a- idea of what we're looking for. Like my fiance, she's, she knows a lot about the electrical side mm-hmm. of things and like I'm pretty good with the structural side of things like framing and all that. But the one thing we didn't know about was there was an issue with the uh, sewer outpipe to the, to the street because things were misaligned and a tree was growing in there and stuff. And it wasn't so bad that things were backing up when we bought the home. But shortly after moving in, we had our washing machine malfunction, and it just ran for like six hours. <laughs> yeah, and the well, basement flooded. <laughs> oh, see, and who who would have saw that coming? No, but, but absolutely. I, mean, I, I don't know if every inspection is going to catch something like that either. So there's risks always when you're buying a house. Absolutely, and that's the that's the hardest part because you're pinching your last pennies a lot of the time, especially oh. as a first time home buyer. Um, and then you have an un, you know an unforeseen uh, issue. So. Um, you know, home warranty programs are, are uh, some lenders will offer a home warranty program, which means if you have a breakdown in your, you know, major home systems, you might get compensation, which again, these are all ways to mitigate your risk. And 
um, make it easier for you and more give you more confidence when you're making that home purchase. Um, but you know, uh, my my experience, especially in residential, has been uh, if you can get in, you can get the right advice. Um, owning some owning to go back to that point of you know having uh, ownership be some foregone concept, I think that that's uh, ridiculous. Now condominiums are another question too because what are you owning? Maybe you don't have a yard, maybe you don't have um, uh, certain features that other um, freehold homes would have, but it's also a lifestyle question. Um, certain cities uh, just that's, are, yeah, yeah, that's the way of life. Yeah, You know, you're in a condominium, which during COVID is certainly stressful, which is why you've seen added pressure on suburban areas. Yeah, big efflux from the city. Absolutely, sure. yeah, yeah, there's an exodus, and um, and I don't blame them. I mean, you know, I I don't know about what your, when you guys grew up, what your uh, area was like, but in Niagara, it was a lot of, like, for me, I got to run around a lot of land and, you mm -hmm. know, uh, vineyards everywhere, the backyard, basically the whole city was the yeah. backyard. And when you go to a place, um, you know, in Toronto and you see just the concrete jungle, um, and now you're in lockdown? Yeah. So I the think there's an, you know, there's an emotional toll as well and a psychological toll for these people who can only do so much with respect to the ownership and the, and the design and the improvement. And I think that that's sort of an intrinsic human desire. When you own something, you want to be able to um, do those upgrades. I mean, you mentioned, you know, Tila's got some electrical knowledge. Mm -hmm. Well, that's been one of the most valuable things for me as a lawyer as well is networking. Um, so if you have an opportunity to get a fixer-upper and you have a network of people that you can say, hey, I think this individual would be a good resource to help me with this side of my project. Reaching out to lots of people, maintaining a diverse network, um, and even doing that maybe before you get into your home purchase, thinking about the people who might help you with the electrical, might help you with, um, oh, if we have to redo this appliance, we're doing a kitchen reno. Um, you know, it's a lot of research, sure, but ask your friends. Mm -hmm. See what their home purchasing experience was like. You mentioned a flood. Well, I've got, you know, an individual that I have to refer to because um, there's, a, there's a crisis with the client and they need a phone number. And, and that's kind of cool, too, because I have a, you know, a Rolodex. I've got a network as well that when people have an issue... I can say, hey, okay, here's who you should call. But um, yeah, no, that's that's definitely part of the uh, the exodus too. Is they want to be able to have that management over and control over uh, a piece of land. Mm -hmm. You know, build it, build a tiki hut in the back, or you know, do something, do something unique. There's an interesting further extent, like a, a secondary exodus that I've seen too. Even like in the uh, the activities of my own parents, where I grew up in a suburb that was quite far out into the country, way, way north of the GTA. And it was a good place to grow up. It wasn't too busy. But now with this, this huge efflux of people from the cities, they said, well, now's a good time to move because house prices are way, way up. So they can basically cash out and move further into the country and, you know, build a home out there or do what they want. They ended up on a, like a farm with like 160 acres kind of thing. So, yeah. so there's an interesting, it's just, it, people are kind of spreading out, which is, it's definitely different. I don't know. Maybe if enough people leave the city, that could possibly drive prices down eventually because there'll be lots of rooms for rent and things like that. Yeah, it's interesting to think that um, a lot of people want to have that har the hobby farm lifestyle too. Yeah. They want the ducks and the chickens and the, uh, you know. It's an interesting thing because it's like a, it's a lifestyle thing that could be kind of marketed to you online. But at the same time, it's not like somebody's really specifically is benefiting from it. It's not like you're buying mm -hmm. into a clothing brand or a yeah. type of food that, you know, somebody has a monetary stake in. You're just kind of living the, your best life in the in that way. Yeah. Just having something to do. It's it's a it's a romantic uh, ideal. Yeah. Of of, you know, the 
human initiative. You've got this, uh, whether or not, even if you are, um, you know, there's uh, individuals who would say, you know, you shouldn't um, have hobby like farms in a sense of um, having like uh, chickens that you're slaughtering for your own meat and things like that. It I mean, depends a lot on your own motivations. I've, I mean, I've done my research on things like that. It doesn't seem like it's specifically a good financial choice, yeah. but like it's not cheaper than buying eggs. But at the same time, if you're consuming eggs, you're yeah. contributing to somebody else farming chickens. So if you don't care about the money end of it, I guess yeah. it's about the same thing, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's very, I think it's very deep rooted in, in like I said, that intrinsic desire to, to take care of your own homestead. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, it's interesting when that question becomes an urban question, people want to have the chicken coop in yeah. an urban space. And there's a lot of interesting situations where people... I think, uh, even bylaws Niagara, you can only have three chickens. <laughs> is that what it is? Yeah. You, you know more about this than I do, I guess. Well, there's lots of uh, stuff like that that does interest me. I do subscribe to the, the rural kind of idea. I'm just trying to move vertically, essentially, for I have these two houses, and maybe when I retire, I can sell one or both, and I can move somewhere nicer that uh, has a bit of land to it. Is there a place in Ontario that you'd, you'd like to see or... To, to live? Well, I don't know. Rural areas that you visited, things that you... It's tricky because I think the Niagara region and then like the... Essentially the strip of land around for, or, or around Lake Erie are my picks for places to be just because of the weather. Like, it's unbelievable how much better the weather is here <laughs> than even the GTA and like anything north of it. It's... Yeah. I, that's the reason why I stayed because I didn't come from around here. I went to school at Brock University and I decided, yep, this is about the nicest place in Ontario that I could live year-round anyway. I feel like that's Niagara's calling card. Yeah. It's good weather most of the time. Our winters are not bad. I like it in general. I'm like him. I didn't move from as far away. but And, and things were a lot cheaper in Niagara than a lot of other places because from what I've seen, there was a lot of people leaving Niagara due to an economic downturn back in about 1990 or so. So, like, things got, there was a lot more houses that were vacant and things got cheaper overall. I mean, I'm sure they're way, way back up beyond where they ever were now, but, but they were cheaper for a bit, even four years ago when I was looking at houses. One of the real estate agents that I'm friends with, he had said that years ago, if you said you were a real estate agent in Niagara, other agents would laugh at you. And now it's flipped. Yeah. Because it's well, you're not a making as spot. much per deal, right? If the, yeah. if the housing prices are low and you're selling a house for 220000 you know, you have to work, uh, you have to do four deals uh, to the guy who just sold the house for 880000 right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, you put in that perspective, yeah, you're working uh, a lot harder. And now you've seen that $220,000 house now being sold for 450000 $500,000. Plus, the thing is, the real estate agent rates haven't gone down. A lot of times they're still like 4%, 5%, something like that. But the houses are flipping. Like, they don't have to sit there and sell the house for a month. It's gone in, you know, two days after listing or something like that. Yeah. So I think the real estate agents are doing pretty good right now. Yeah, they're having a blast. <laughs> yeah, they're having, they're having a blast. They're all and driving their fancy cars and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, you know, I think that comes with the territory. What else do you do? Mm -hmm. you know, unless you're investing your money into farms. Which I think, you know, like that hobby farm. I, would, I, I think if you had a toss-up between owning a nice piece of land and owning a a vehicle like that you yeah know, for them appreciates immediately it's true it does it's not a, it's not an asset by any measure the uh, i think it's a lot about their image too because like you're you're kind of like a local celebrity if you're a real estate agent and you're good Faces at it are on the yeah, you're on the billboards on the you have this buses. big smiling you know personality and it's all interesting that. to think of it as an expense as a marketing expense in a way and well, it's uh, a, it's it's definitely marketing yeah mm -hmm. 
I mean, I guess at that point, then can you fault them for <laughs> dri- no. for driving the? Usually, I mean, nowadays it's a Tesla that's the trendy one. Yeah, but a lot of times it's a Mustang really or like a, Big, a flashy SUV vehicle. or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, my my 2014 Chevy Cruze has a few issues, so maybe at some point I'll I'll Ooh. adopt the image and. What, uh, <laughs> can we get into what kind of issues? I'm yeah, we can get the, into uh, all the issues. Let's get did into. The, did the turbo kay. go? So the turbo is is going. Yeah. So let's go. Okay. So the turbo is going. Um, there is a, uh, a constant tick, tick, tick sound. Okay. And, uh, and a new issue, which has surprised me, is the uh, thermometer, sticky sticky thermometer. And it tells me that it's overheating. The thermostat. The, yeah, therm- That's thermostat. That's a cheap fix. That's a cheap fix. So okay. At least you do that. Right. We can take, we'll, we'll, take <laughs> care, we'll talk about that after. If you can help <laughs> me with that, get me through to the summer, and we'll, uh, we'll see if I can. Uh... I'm not super brand loyal when it comes to cars, but I, I have a general idea of what is not super reliable and unfortunately the cruises are not super yeah, reliable especially yeah. the turbochargers because that's an expensive but fix. when the turbo works wow oh it's fast they're cheap quick yeah <laughs> they're great they, uh, i've seen uh, one in ten gas pedal yeah. pumps and you're, you're and you're getting sailing. good fuel economy oh too. yeah that's part mm-hmm. of the because re- well, i took it to new brunswick right so i did my law degree in uh, out east and i needed a vehicle that um uh, was really fuel you know fuel efficient and i was driving around um uh, the East Coast for with, when I was playing lacrosse out east as well um, for the university and you know you'd play games in, in Nova Scotia and you'd be on four hour treks so um, I wanted to make sure I had a vehicle that was really fuel efficient that was the primary motivation. What did you like about being out east? That is a honestly I, I love talking about the East Coast because I'd love to hear it, about it's, it. Well it's to, for me law, law school is stressful and there are some people who it's kind of you take out of law school what you put into it and for me you know, having a law degree in a province where you were not only it, the program size was small enough that you really got to understand your professors, you really got to meet people. Like you really understood people. So um, your head is in the books as much as you need it to be in the books. But there's always uh, an opportunity to, to you know have a have a pint with a professor and talk. And these and these are you know world renowned scholars who are mm-hmm. getting cited by the Supreme Court. And, and then you're joking around with them uh, at the grad house or something. It's like, um, that's, I think that's a unique thing that I, I know other law schools don't have. And the East Coast, um, in general, has a really good reputation for that sort of camaraderie and wanting other people to, to, to hold other people up um, in a sense of supporting them. And um, I think that that's, I experienced that, um, and I haven't talked to somebody who said, said anything different so I guess that's a that's definitely a positive and, and traveling in general um, you know when I when I finished my undergrad um, a professor that I really respected said you've got to get out of the province which is a hard thing to say because I'm really like a really committed to my my roots I've really always loved um, you know the the life that my, my family built for me and really loved my community and always wanted to give back to my community. So to hear somebody threaten my, like, you've got to get out, it was a strange thing to hear. But Mm -hmm. um, there is something to be said about meeting uh, or at least seeing and encountering a different way of life. And I know that's why people travel and they they want to go see different parts of the world. But even seeing a different part of Canada, whether it's east or west, Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it is nice to be able to, to, um, you know, invest in another... um, in another way of living and and I say that um, with with respect because when you go to you know some of the homes that are uh, out east and some of the way just the way that they embrace you and make you part of their family immediately 
um, is that's really special. That's the thing that I always hear about from from friends that have gone out east to PEI to Nova Scotia, somewhere like that. It's always about the people and about the friendliness. They're friendly. Of them. They're yeah. very friendly. Cool. Yeah. Even just a a few days there, you can tell yeah. the the people are just. Maybe life's a little slower out there. I don't know. Well, I'll give you a good example, and this is a, a typical Ontarable observation. This is the uh, this is what the people who are disgruntled Ontarians are from Ontarable. <laughs> um, and so, one of the observations that I made is they're very, very particular about the crosswalk. I'm always getting one foot out in front of the cross. You know, when the when the light changes on the crosswalk. But there's a. I mean, maybe Fredericton's a government town, so maybe that's a. Maybe that's part of it. I I, I didn't go to a crosswalk in Moncton. Maybe they're. Maybe they have a different perspective. But you know, you you get to the crosswalk and you wait till that walking man is flashing. <laughs> like that's you know. Yeah. That's part of their thing and. Um, I was sitting down having lunch at a patio, um, and somebody honked their horn, and and another local kind of shouted like, "This isn't Toronto, you know. <laughs> like, you don't get to just honk your horn." Um, also tried to hail a cab. You can't hail cabs. You gotta like call them. They don't just pick you up, hmm. even if they're empty. That's not the system. That's different. you can't you can't point your finger and be like, "I'm important. Let me in." They're like, no, you're not that important. That's strange because that does. I can't see any business reason not to just let a person into a vacant cab. Well, yeah, I don't know. Small <laughs> Small I don't know. Person. I don't think that's that's not always the, the motivating factor. Fair enough. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Like I said, there's just um, and they're comfortable with that. Um, they're comfortable with that, and uh, yeah, you you just learn a lot about um, that uh, that way of living and uh, kitchen parties. You know, Friendliest wait staff in PEI too. Kind of a weird thing, but at restaurants, they're so much more down to earth and friendly. I found that's a really good observation too. We the yeah. the restaurant that we went to, we shot a wedding in PEI, and we drove to PEI. And the restaurant that we went to after the wedding the following morning, the like I, I will always go back because the the wait staff was just out of this world and friendly. Mm-hmm. Any server. Any anybody who's in a service delivery always treats you like you know you've got something important to say and they yeah. want to learn from you. Like that's kind of and, and now as a lawyer, I value that even more because if you get to know the person before you even uh, have to help them with a legal issue, um, you're going to understand their goals and their motivations a lot differently, and you're going to just you're going to be able to build that level of communication, which is so fundamental um, and. They do that out of habit down there. They do that in a way of it's an interpersonal skill that is truly seeking um, a, a way to connect with you with every way of uh, with every dialogue. Yeah. So that's that's special because you don't always get that like a somebody who's serving you at a restaurant or whatever the case is. You know, Canadian Tire. You're you're buying something and it's like, how are you doing? And if you say if you say not good, they're not going to look at you in surprise. They're going to say, "What the heck happened?" You know, like tell me about it. <laughs> yeah. Like, cool. tell me about it, um, because they've got, um, you know, they've got stories to share too, and they're happy. Um, absolutely, like um, at least you know the people that I know that grew up there. Um, for what it's worth, um, being somebody from Ontario. Not necessarily, you know, I didn't make it clear that I wanted to stay in the East Coast. It was an option for me. I mean, it, it always is when you move to another place. But um, that didn't dissuade anybody from uh, from absolutely giving me that same sort of positivity. 
and support. So that's cool. Yeah. And one interesting thing, I don't know if this is something you want publicly known, but I thought it was interesting. Yeah. Before the the travel ban, we'll say, yeah. you're, you're a jet-setting lawyer, so I found out, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, of course that can be publicly known. Um, 100%. Well, before the travel ban... Um, did a huge chunk of this business deal from Florida. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> so I actually did the asset transaction uh, for this business here. Yeah. Um, uh, Silvestri. Yep. Um, in an airport. And uh, called the calling the other lawyer Fort Lauderdale yeah yeah okay yeah (laughs) yeah I've been there um so it was really interesting because part of it was um the digital signings which I set up um but the other part of it was um you know calling the other lawyer who (laughs) who uh I wasn't sure if we're gonna be able to close anyways this is this is a good story I'm happy to tell it um (laughs) I don't think I told you where I was going to be but I said I'll get it done for you right Jess I think yeah. your assistant told me. Okay, end. yeah, my assistant <laughs> told you, yeah. Um, but but to me that that's that's irrelevant. Like I think that um, this is part of the global sort of um, opportunities, and it is disappointing um, that I, I haven't been able to have that jet setter type lifestyle because that was I had a lot of fun, you know, doing I bet. yeah, doing legal work in a uh, in an airport and you know getting transactions closed and and the way I move money. I think I even sent the wire. Um, from my laptop in the airport to close the transaction. So, like, I was moving money using internet Wi-Fi, yeah. and that's another really important feature too. Is is the uh, transformation to the industry of how of how lawyers do business. So, on top of the um, digital transformation, meaning the documents that you signed were set up electronically for your for your signature that way, is how money moves. I mean, five years ago, there were very few firms that would ever have the commercial platform set up where the lawyer could just take the laptop and send the money um, on, on, you know, that way. The traditional process was always get a check cut and, and go down to the bank and certify it. But my experience since adopting the commercial tools has been, yeah, okay, maybe I am in Florida. Maybe I'm in Hawaii. But, you know, that's actually a, a vision for most uh, I would say most entrepreneurs now, and I see myself, you know, in that in that regard. Um, I don't I have the idea of being in ball and chain, tied to the desk lawyer. Yeah, well, there's a place for that. There's a you know there's a nine to five. But if I have to shift things around and maybe take a few more digital appointments that week because I am away, well, okay. Uh, I think that that's a that's also a cool lifestyle achievement. You know, you've it's got cool lifestyle. right. You know, and then the only downfall being maybe the farm lifestyle. Uh, view if, if my Wi-Fi isn't yeah. too is is a little spotty, but I think Elon Musk's going to yeah. take care of that. I was about to say that there's now new satellite internet yeah. on the horizon that's actually good, apparently, yeah. because what I've always yeah. heard about satellite internet before is that it's terrible. The Starlink, isn't that what it yeah, is? And that's, Biden yeah, that's announced one. the other day that he considers high-speed internet to be a fundamental infrastructure. Well, is it a human right? Is, yeah, it, is yeah. access to internet a human right? Freedom of information? It, it makes sense how it could, especially in countries where the population is quite poor and not well connected, it could elevate all those people to a level playing field in many regards to the rest of the world. Like, So is, is, is internet a public good? If so, should we not be ensuring it's the equality of its delivery? Across? It, it makes sense, especially as far as like commerce is concerned if you don't want 
just mega corporations to rule the world. You could have some guy in some remote part of the world that you know spins some kind of crazy fabric into some kind of exotic clothing, and maybe that's going to be the next trend. And yeah. this guy could elevate a business in some place of the world that never would have been able to do it before, or mm-hmm. any other interesting business venture that appeals to to the globe. Yeah, yeah. Oh. So people ha- should have the ability to, as a consumer make those decisions as well. Mm-hmm. I guess the tension here is, do we have freedom of information for the purposes of uh, critique and you know analysis and commentary? And, and that's where you get into you know the sources of your information. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the second question is, is um, well, access to information, um, what does that really mean? Like, what kind of critical skills do you have that you want to employ to um, maybe not take all the information at face value? So I think I th- you know I think that that's so maybe a, you're saying that people that maybe have not had the internet before this might not have the skepticism required to use well, it. Well, I don't well, know. People that have had the internet for 20 years still don't have the skepticism no, most, to use most it. Do not, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think skepticism is part and parcel of what um, what we have to do as humans. Like every single article I read now that seems even slightly off, I'm double and triple checking because there's so much out there. But yeah. the idea of the a free internet at least means that you can. Even if it's wrong, you can access all information. Yeah. And I don't know. I, I think that's a good... People will sort themselves to a degree. Yeah. yeah. There's a great book on the uh, founding of the Oxford Dictionary. It's called The Madman and the Professor, something like that. And um, it, it, goes, it, it charts out one of the main contributors to this encyclopedia. And so the idea of an encyclopedia of knowledge, this was a major human undertaking. The idea that we would have... Um, you know, a dictionary which charts out, you know, the, the, the etymology and it goes through the history of the word and its most common usages. This is a major undertaking. Mm-hmm. And so you think about Wikipedia, um, that seems like a public good too. It seems like everybody should be able to access this encyclopedia, this database of knowledge. Yeah. And then the question becomes, well, what points of information even within this database are contested or political? Right, so the political ramifications of delivering information um, is something that you got to be skeptical about. I mean, why wouldn't you be? That's fair. I, I think at least with Wikipedia, since it is such an open platform, open to public editing and things like that, mm-hmm. you're at least at least a little bit less of a risk of being fed something that's propaganda or something worse. Yeah, because you should be able to trust it. If there's multiple versions of the same event, it'd be nice to be able to see all of those and mm-hmm. you know have the. It put forth that there are some differing of opinions on things. Yeah, it's it's almost like a lot of stuff, like say the uh, dictionary or whatever that gets published and, and is the first to come to to the public. It almost takes all of this information, all these variances, and it solidifies it in one form, and mm-hmm. then that kind of sets the tone for the future. Like, yeah, there, there really wasn't such a rigid definition of words before there was a dictionary where people would look up and well, that's the definition. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're using the word wrong. No, I'm not. And this goes back and forth until there's a duel. <laughs> <laughs> duel to the death. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, but no, I, I really do think like uh, as much as people will criticize, um, you know, the press and they're going to say, well, this is fake or this is fake. I haven't heard anybody really point to Wikipedia and say these contributors are misleading. I don't know. Have you guys heard anybody really calling out Wikipedia and saying, this is a, you know, there's a political agenda behind the contributions. Maybe it's decentralization no. as part of its ability to I feel to by thrive. the time you complained about it, it probably would have been changed anyway. <laughs> yeah. So you have to go a level deeper if you really want to 
figure out what is misinformation on Wikipedia because as much as when I was in school, teachers would say it's not a legitimate source, yeah. it has it sources. And so they're Le sourcing their information. Yeah, it has means it's legitimate, legitimate. <laughs> sources at the bottom yeah. and say that they're scholarly articles reviewed by, you know, a scientist and their peers. Um, you can go to those articles and I'm sure some of those are biased. They were paid for by said drunk or drug company or paid mm -hmm. for by some other corporate interest. And there might be, yeah. there might be some misinformation here and there, but it's at the level beyond the general aggregator of information that is Wikipedia. So you could at least have a few different viewpoints, especially if it's something that's been, you know, the effect of a drug has been studied by different groups. Yeah. At least. Yeah. I had a lot of fun in, uh, <laughs> it was like I was high school and changing some basketball Wikipedia page to add all my friends' nicknames and yeah, yeah that was a poor use of my. But it gets free, it gets scrubbed quickly enough if it anybody did. cares. I was about very. I remember doing that in high school too, changing the Tilsonberg Wikipedia page yeah. to mention my friends and I and whatnot. Yeah. And yeah. probably like two hours and it was gone. And the person <laughs> who changed it back, I guess, was able to. I don't know if he had to make a profile. I can't remember. But yes, was actually able to message the profile and say, ha ha, very funny. It's back to normal. Yeah, nice try, bud. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, I don't know. Can you even do that? Anymore? Like, You can still make contributions. I think there might be a bit more of a vetting more of an, process. There's more of an if, audit process. If it's a yeah. commonly viewed page. If it's something that, if it's a brand new page okay. or if it's something, I guess, that isn't accessed as much, I think there might be yeah. different rules or you might be able to get away with putting misinformation for longer. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah, that sucks. It's been a while since I've thought, yeah, I need to change this Wikipedia. Yeah, this Wikipedia page no. is insufficient. They've been filtered by so many people. Like, it, it is... I, I forget what the, the principle is, but it's the idea that if you survey the population about a given topic or a given problem or something like that, a lot of people are wrong, but enough people are wrong <laughs> in both directions that when you average the output of all the population, <laughs> you end up pretty darn close to the right answer. Like for instance, the number of jelly beans in a jar. People are way off, but when you average everybody together, you get pretty close yeah, a lot I'm, of the time. I'm really good with those guessing games. Yeah. I haven't thought about that. <laughs> so, that makes a lot of sense. So what does that mean then? Like that you're supposed to have both sides to get to the middle? Perhaps. It, it lets that's people- that's a good lesson in general. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, and then again, somebody might say that that's a false dichotomy. I mean, we look at the, the idea in our politics all the time that there's left wing and there's right wing. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a false dichotomy. Yeah. Things exist along the spectrum. Also, things that get anchored as political party, like single issues and stuff like that, it's strange that they ever got associated with the parties to begin with, mm -hmm. other than just to gain voter traction. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's populism, I guess. Mm -hmm. yeah. There's a lot of that. I mean, that's pretty much how politics works these days. And North America, anyways. Well, the whole the whole basis of uh, brokerage politics is that um, political parties ought to be reaching out to the common denominator in both directions, whether left or right. So you fall in the middle, like we were saying, the truth that people want to hear, or the one that's actually most pragmatic. Because regardless of the nuances, regard regardless of the disambiguations, if there is a an issue, and you reach in the middle, you have a common denominator. Then we ought to at least try to. Um, build that into the agenda. Uh, and, you know, is that a fault of democracy in a sense, right? Are you asking us to 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 go to the middle when there might be, like you said, there's a false dichotomy, there is a right answer here. Is that the question? Well, I think that's tough because there's always going to be people who want to know that at least they've been able to make their contribution um, and to weigh in on an issue. And if the consensus is that it's um, the decision is, needs to be made in one direction, well, okay. 
That's the way it should be, at least as far as I'm concerned, there's going to be a, a dialogue, always, no matter what. That's a fair evaluation. I guess it's why we're stuck with the, the political arena that has existed for a long time now, just because it kind of works good enough to keep itself going. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, it's, uh, there's a quote, you know, democracy is the worst form of government yep. besides all the others. Besides all the others that we haven't tried yet. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know what to, the thing is, is democracy and the way that you engage people should change. It should evolve. So the concept, democracy as, a, as an idea, as a concept, um, what it means is participation. So it shouldn't be static. The way we understand democracy can't be static because the way we relate to each other um, changes in the mediums that we use and the way that we express ourselves. You know, the Instagram versus the Twitter versus the, you know, the, the way that we're engaging our information um, for pragmatic purposes to make decisions as a society. Um, it's changing. So what does engagement mean? What does, um, what does it look like to engage your political structure, uh, you know, through, through formal or informal structures? And democracy has to adapt. How you reach the decision makers and the stakeholders within that, within that specific issue area, that's going to change. It seems like the thing that always, whenever there's a big thing that needs to, that people are pushing for politically, it's always call your representatives. That's still the, mm -hmm. the thing that I hear yeah, from every yeah, person yeah. that's concerned about any single issue. And I guess that makes sense as, as to why it would be the, the number one way that you could influence politics yourself is if just a massive amount of people are calling their specific representative mm -hmm. that can, you know, go up the chain to a degree. Because it does seem like at the, at the highest level, the government's pretty unreachable. Yeah. You need lots of levels of filtering before it gets to the prime minister or the, the party in power. Which is why, for what it's worth, thinking of unreachable, up until the COVID situation, if you wanted to text Doug Ford, he had a text line that he would actually respond to. Yeah. He gave out his cell phone, and he mm -hmm. he was very public about saying he would legitimately stay up late at night responding to yeah. messages and trying to work it out. And when COVID hit, he said, I had to stop. Like, yeah, of course. It, it it's became unworkable. more overwhelming than usual, so I had to stop with that. Very divisive, too. Out of everybody was a great idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think people really... The way that he's handled the response, like response to COVID, has really shifted a lot more people into favor with what he's yeah. saying, and a lot more people out of favor too. So I don't know. It is divisive. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. I don't envy um, being, you know, a, a government official. During, I, I don't know what I would have done during times of crisis. How difficult? How difficult is your decision-making process? And you're relying on the same science and That's evidence true. and facts that other people are relying on. You, it uh, seems like they're always going to err on the side of caution because even if there's some reason to believe that maybe personal freedom should be put first and things like that, if things get really bad because they didn't restrict things enough, mm -hmm. they're going to be to blame. So why would they put themselves in harm's way? They can just say, well, we'll restrict it as much as we can because then you can't blame me. Well, then that's, that perspective says that the, that the end goal is to stay in power, right? And that is... That is a difficult question. Mm -hmm. If your decision-making process is, let's err on the side of caution because we won't be blamed in the event that we're wrong, well, you're just seeking re-election at that time. Yes. You're not necessarily going, <laughs> you're not taking your argument to the logical conclusion and saying, okay, but um, what if this measure was unnecessary? What is the actual cost? Mm -hmm. So my, you know, my perspective on it is um, when you have to make decisions, there's a bureaucracy behind you as well. Mm -hmm. And if you can't convince the bureaucratic actors 
whether they're the people in the health, people in um, labor, people uh, who, who have to implement these policies, especially lockdown. If there isn't a consensus, even among the bureaucrats, then you've lost legitimacy. Then the decision, as much as it airs on the side of caution, at least for your optics, uh, if, it's not, if it lacks legitimacy, then it ought not to be pursued. And so, you know, I understand that it's, uh, lockdown's been divisive. Oh, it's um, getting more divisive. Yeah. I think there's a fourth one. Like, if, if we come out of it and then there's a fourth wave and they have to shut things down again, that's when there's going to be anarchy. It's the question right now. So it's the question of what the lockdowns are actually doing, how much they're actually achieving. Because it's easy enough to say COVID cases are on the rise, so that means we need to be more strict. Mm-hmm. But are the measures actually helping that much? There's, I mean, I should look back into it because I'm, I'm curious to know how the states that are not restricting like anything, like mm-hmm. for instance, Florida, yeah, how are they doing? How well, their numbers are, uh, as far as I understand, and look, I, I don't have any states in front was, of me. But the states was way worse to begin with. Way worse I, to begin with, yeah. and now and now there's been some sort of a leveling out, as I understand, um, which again calls into question what was the what's what's the pain versus payoff, right? Like, do you have to mm-hmm. front load the misery so that you have some stability on the back end, or do you just do you just <laughs> do you you know uh, delay the misery and you you know, stretch it out over a period of time, and then hope that you reach that same stable period, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like what what roller coaster ride do you want? Do you want the lazy river, or do you want you know the uh, the vertical drop? And uh, it's tough because um, you know you can step aside and you can say, well, I don't have to make that decision because my government does. But you also have to ask, okay, well, what is the consensus? Because if there if no one's asking the questions of what is the outcome? What is the logical consequence? If nobody's raising those questions, the government's not going to be able to do a very good job. No. Because they do rely on on the pulse, you know, the political pulse of the nation, the political pulse of a region, and uh, you have to field that. I think after all this is done, whenever it finally finishes for a while, there will at least be a predictive model for what to do if ever a virus ever arose again and it was yeah. of a similar amount of uh, the ability to spread and things like that because you can study every country in the world every state every whatever and see what worked and what didn't and just at least you might have something a bit more concrete that's less politically divisive because we say we know that this is the best method well the challenge of course with all that is when they start talking about extra variants of of the illness which kind of makes you call into question well even if we were perfect if we return to normal society and there's another variant, how have we avoided that altogether? I mean, it, it's, it is a challenging, it's a frustrating concept for sure. The key thing that always seems to be brought up whenever there's a new variant is like, what does that actually mean? Like, I hear that some doctors are saying some of them are more virulent than others, mm-hmm. some are more deadly than others, things mm-hmm. like that. That's they, the thing. they attach themselves to younger people. The ICUs have a higher yeah. percentage of younger people. Okay. In- in like, situation, yeah. it'd be interesting to know, like, how many of the, these variants are surviving, you know, side by side, and like, how many, yeah, like, what exactly is going on with that? Because it really, it does seem a bit like a scare tactic, the way that it's always put it out. Really does, yeah, and like, that, like, oh, it mutate because that's a scary word, right? Yeah, it's, it's scary that's word. very intimidating. If it if it is a problem, of course, we should be concerned about it. But yeah. at the same time, I think it's been said way too many times. Oh, it's yeah. a new mutated strain. Well, okay. Well, how exhaust how exhausting is that to hear that? Um, you know, the idea that um, you know, regardless of the perfection of the lockdown measures that you implement, there might ultimately be 
another variant. Yeah. So I think what you have to do for people, at least to instill hope, um, that they're going to be able to have some return to normalcy, uh, is try to moderate the real concern that there are variants, that are there are strains, there are things that are going to happen. And regardless of COVID, there could be a very aggressive flu that kills a lot of people. Of course. And so you have different types of um, airborne illnesses. And what you're saying to people in general, the message should, shouldn't waver. Yeah, there might be new variants, but here's what we're going to implement, and this is what we're going to do. Um, and uh, I just feel like right now there is a lot of um, frustration with, with the way that the message is delivered. Because everybody wants um, there to be a return to normalcy in the sense of, the human interactions that we've had uh, in public, in private, whether it's your business versus another business that gets to stay open. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of, a lot of, uh, I mean, it's difficult as well when you, when you watch hockey players, you know, uh, you know, they get to play a game they love and they get to do so because they're in a privileged position uh, and say what you will about the entertainment value, keeping, keeping the masses appeased. But I'll tell you that it's very difficult um, you know, as a member of community, uh, a member of a community to watch, you know, professionals uh, get to play their sport um, when local children and, you know, local communities are, are prevented from doing so. So the, hypocri the hypocrisy is, you know, is, is just, right, you know, prevalent. The yeah. argument, I guess, for why that isn't, like, <laughs> now I can't say the word, hypocrisy is perhaps because there's more control of said situation. Right, they're like in their own bubble. Yeah, you're dealing yeah. with professionals, you're dealing with sure. a very controlled environment, so I, I suppose that makes sense. Yeah, okay, I, I see that the, too. The more ambiguous nature of it, I guess, is when people have been very forward uh, complaining about how big business is always open and how you know a lot of these small businesses were unfairly targeted by, by things. And then there's just these weird reactions to it at the same time as well, like to say, okay, fine, the reason that these big businesses are open is because they have these essential services and to further down like back down and say they're essential they make them to tape off things that are not essential mm -hmm. which, which is which weird is because weird. <laughs> the, the first <laughs> yeah that's um, really weird like are you not are you not going to get sick because you're browsing for groceries instead of a new tv like that's a weird distinction why <laughs> it's bizarre yeah you're already in the building you're already in the building and the thing beyond that too like Costco, Walmart, all those places are open. Now they don't, they can't go to the small business, so they're all in the same place. And maybe it's a little bit more of a controlled environment in your mind. That just means you have no trust for your citizens. You have no trust that people can follow reg rules and regulations. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's tricky. But even what we're doing right now as a video production isn't as restricted as, say, opening your bakery to have customers come indoors. But mm -hmm. I, I mean, I can't think of the logical reason for it. But our lawmakers seem to to single certain things out like that. It was interesting because the first few lockdowns, people were always saying, you know, give give small businesses a chance, close down Walmart and Costco. Well, I don't sell food, so that doesn't, that doesn't benefit me. No. But as soon as they did that with this one and they started closing down sections, people got mad that they closed down mm -hmm. sections. So it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't. But the, yeah, and there's no logical reason for it. Like you're just trying to say, oh, if you want a new television, you want to... To buy some kind of fancy gadget or something you shouldn't you should stay home is what i guess what they're trying to send but at the same time but before they gotta go there to get groceries anyway beforehand the the, the mentality was if walmart can stay open as an essential business because they sell food but eric's electronic superstore that just sells tvs has to close and somebody needs a tv 
Walmart gets a sale, not you. Yeah. So now so the, the playing field is a little leveled because they can't go directly into Walmart and buy the TV just like they can't go directly into It's leveled, but in the store. wrong direction. Yes. Like somebody is crippled and somebody isn't, so you cripple the other guy too. But then it's on the flip side of things, essential items, I can't go to a store. I can't go to Henry's and buy a camera. But no. that's essential to this aspect to of the, the business. To the business that you're allowed to run. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not a perfect <laughs> system. I can buy a camera online, but I like to see what it feels like. And mm. I can't do that right now, even though my business doing this yeah. or doing a corporate video is essential. Yeah, the pressure is towards online purchases. The pressure is that you will make your purchase, um, you know, virtually. Uh, but you lose that that interaction with the item. Yeah. yeah, and you lose a good chunk of sales. Um, somebody describing the item to you and making you feel like it's the right purchase. I suppose what you work with is not a physical item, but do you think that the, the virtualness of, of your work has helped you perhaps be more efficient? or Because well, you were already you know, jet-setting and doing things yeah, on a laptop. From, yeah, from I, I definitely... Yeah, yeah, that was... Well, I mean... And you said you liked meeting people in person, but do you really... When it gets down to it, do you work more efficiently... I work way. more efficiently in person. Okay. And the, good to know. But there are efficiencies that are gained in complex files. Uh, a good example is when you have a family making a purchase, one family member is in, you know, Yellowknife. Another family member is in uh, Toronto. Um, and, and maybe you have co-signers and, and another parent has to sign. And ordinarily, you'd be engaging a number of lawyers. Uh, and the... Uh, these other lawyers would have to meet with these people in person to sign those documents. So you can imagine the challenge of having a single set of documents with three people in three locations that have to, each of them now have to meet with a, a, an individual lawyer to sign those documents. Well, now what I'll do is I'll blend it. Maybe I'll meet the primary purchaser, the person who's really responsible for the mortgage, and I'll meet them in person, and then I'll set up digital appointments with the other two. So that process has really um, given... To me, it's a more holistic solution for people uh, who are in transactions, who are purchasing or selling, um, especially sales. If you're out of the province, or um, you know, you have you have property in a different, uh, you have property in Ontario, and you live out east or out west, um, you can meet with a lawyer in Ontario. And what that means for me, and what that means for a lot of small businesses too, is, well, if this is the trajectory, then what are the tools? So yeah, efficiency efficiency is not necessarily gained because digital appointments are, always take me longer. Um, I do, I lose the reaction, I lose the the body language when mm -hmm. somebody is giving me like, hey, you're you know slow down because occasionally you know third cup of coffee and it gets a little bit uh, <laughs> it gets a little bit fast paced. But but you know people people want to that that interaction, the immediacy of having somebody in an appointment in person. I always enjoy those appointments more. In fact, I'm exhausted after a virtual appointment, staring at a screen, trying to understand where they are on the page. Now, I think that that might improve as, this, as the technology, the sophistication of the technology, and people's expectations of how to use that technology. Um, you know, when there's a convergence in that regard where they know they're showing up to a digital appointment, it's the second one they've done or third one they've done, and they know what to expect. Mm -hmm. They know how to use Zoom. They know how to use digital signings. Um, that's going to cut back on some of the um, the, the, the time, you know, consumption. An interesting thought I just had, um, as I think this pandemic has made many of, much of the older population more tech savvy because, yes. like, mm -hmm. a, a, an interesting observation I had when I was going to my, um, 
the fracture clinic after I had my my ankle injury, um, there there was a system in place at this clinic where they would send you a text message before your appointment, mm -hmm. and it would you know let you know when it was and and all the details mm -hmm. and give you information to reach out and contact if you needed to. And uh, it was a pilot project, which they, they discontinued after a little while. I'm not exactly sure why. But while I was sitting there after they had discontinued it, mostly, pretty much entirely a population over 60, maybe even over 70 in some cases, were complaining to the secretaries that they really liked the system, mm -hmm. which I never thought that they'd be the ones complaining about such a thing. You think, oh, they're trying to make it easier for people that you know always walk around with their phone and they're mm -hmm. always texting people. But no, the, the older population loved it. And, and I'm sure lots of those people are learned how to use Zoom over the last year and things like that, too. That's kind of neat. Yes. I think Zoom also nailed it in the sense that it is very easy to yes. use if you're not the one setting up the meeting. So if an, a grandparent is requested to join a Zoom call with their son and their granddaughter or whatever, it is really just a few clicks and it does work. Mm -hmm. which I think they, given the timing and everything, they really nailed it that way. Mm -hmm. So the, I guess more of the population is getting on the same page. So hopefully that makes yeah. this kind of work easier for you in, yeah, in the well, future. And well, the nice thing is, is as we get older and as the people that are middle-aged get to the to the elder stage, mm -hmm. they'll, they'll have spent more time with technology. So That's one of the things, too. Um, I think making a habit of trying to keep yourself um, engaged with with technology is um, I think that's important I mean I know growing up having access to every video game system and uh, you know <laughs> you, well, right well you got to play you got to learn mm -hmm. the art of trial and error within a digital device because I think that that's the biggest barrier for accessing technology for most people is we got to do trial and error um, in our generation I mean at least um, you know, if you're born anywhere from you know 1980 uh, onwards, you're you know you're you were you had exposure to a, this digital system, right? Um, and now it's it's great to hear um, uh, Elon Musk talk about the cell phone as being really it's another it's a you are um, bio integrated with tech. This is an appendage, and yeah. it goes back to our our access to internet. Mm -hmm. Your phone is now your uh, ability to connect yourself to others and to obtain information so is a cell phone a human right <laughs> do we all do we all have a right to communicate through a cell phone especially during a lockdown you know yeah people it, can't afford their cell phone bills i think that's unfortunate well know? there's interesting pushes in canada too like jesse has a lot more experience with this than me but there's um there's some there's government programs that are trying to get people in touch with technology trying to get people new computers oh. and things like that so, so yeah. the government, our government yeah. does understand yeah. that this subsidized, right subsidized people. Well, the other thing, um, when everything locked down being, I, I guess, a new business, there wasn't a lot of grants or subsidies that we actually qualified for. The one that we did, and we were very happy to receive, was a digital transformation grant. And we got it, and I'm glad we got it, kind of restricted as to what we can do with it, because... The money can go to paying for uh, professional photos. Mm -hmm. I don't think I could get away with that because <laughs> I'm capable of doing it. Same thing with the video side of things. And then there was money set aside or there's money in the grant that can be allocated to building a website when I already had a website. So it was really for the 
the old school businesses that don't have the digital presence that the, that the government, through the grant, they want these businesses to be able to digitally transform. Mm -hmm. And to its credit, we didn't have an online store, and now we do, so we did transform in that capacity. But mm -hmm. I, I can see a lot of other businesses, it would have benefited them more because there's some businesses that have been around forever that don't have any website or don't have mm -hmm. any presence online outside mm -hmm. of like a Google listing. And even some don't have the Google listing. That's this right. Is, this is almost a good place to plug what we do. If you're a business and you need <laughs> stuff online, we can make stuff for mm -hmm. your online presence, videos, photos. Yeah, absolutely. You know, some of the web stuff. Yeah, yeah. I do. I am I'm growing with the web stuff too, which is nice. Um, um, is there any, I guess, last things that maybe you came here thinking you might want to discuss or anything like that? Because written towards the end of it, and I want to give you a, a chance. Well, I mean, I think that um, when I was speaking to, to Jesse um, earlier, and he sort of asked me, you know, what, what is it like to be a lawyer, in a sense? And I think it's really important because you got to demystify mm. what it is that lawyers do. We connect people to information. That's how we um, really earn our keep, because most of the time, when you connect with a lawyer, whether you know it's um, beyond real estate, if you've got a, a legal question, mm -hmm. um, there's there's information that you're looking for. So I'm a broker of information, and um, you know part of my skill set is that um, I'm able to offer you an opinion based upon how that information has implications legally. Like, you know. So that's, that, it gets me thinking. Have you ever thought of doing like a video series on YouTube or something like that where absolutely you answer stuff? Absolutely. I, I, I want to point out the one. I watch one lawyer on YouTube. Oh, I bet you I know. His name's Ian Runkle. Okay. Uh, he's a criminal uh, defense Never and mind. firearms lawyer because yeah. I have a lot of like firearms related questions and stuff like hunting and all that. But it was just something to interest me because he looks at court cases like every week. He'll pull one up and he'll read it and demystify a lot of the legal mm -hmm. speak. So I can see the value for that if you were to be interested in producing that kind of content for sure. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think, you know, breaking down cases is something that lawyers have started doing. Um, there was an explosion in the blogosphere, right? A lot of a lot of lawyers were doing blogging, which is fantastic because you get to read other what other lawyers are saying about legal issues. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, YouTube videos, exposure, I think that um, lawyers have a responsibility to engage members of the public on these topics and maybe not everybody has that legal issue but i think that's part of what we should be doing um, the other, oh, sorry no i'm just saying that. that's no that was that was that's it though breaking it down yeah the other thing that i think the reason why we do this and lawyers real estate agents doing something like this even short form or long form videos it personifies you Right? Oh, for like sure, yeah. Like Michael Lydiard, Michael Lydiard, you're a lawyer, people know that, but when they get to see you, especially in regular non-lawyer <laughs> garb... You mean a beard you, and a hat. <laughs> yeah, but it gives you a personality more so than just like with real estate agents being the, the super nice picture on a, on a bus stop bench or something like that. Gives them a, a personality further yeah. than just the... Yeah, you got to embody it yeah. for sure. You've got to have a presence, and um, so if you ever want to do it, you know who to call. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, um, but yeah, no, that's being a lawyer for sure is understanding that there's going to be a way to connect somebody to that to the answer, uh, or at least likely outcomes. 
So that's the biggest responsibility I have. Um, and while you know, even in real estate, most of your transactions are going to be smooth sailing, um, I've got to be there for questions that are maybe out of left field. Yeah, you helped us months after the, yeah. the transaction at this place with a few other questions yeah, that, there. Yeah, that's yeah, good, so. yeah, absolutely. You've got to be uh, uh, you know, a resource. And part of, the, um, part of the nature of being a lawyer is building sort of a database of, uh, of connections and networks and people who, if I don't have the answer for you, I know somebody who does. And that's really um, enriching for sure as far as a career path. That's got to be the most valuable of all, is getting to meet people and learning what they do well, and then putting them in touch with other people who want, you know, they want to have that type of um, um, resource. So, yeah, that's got to be the best part about it. I do have one more question. Just popped into my head. Yeah. When you, when you look at your your profession, and then you look at pop culture. Do you ever get annoyed at how lawyers are portrayed in media? Like, no, do you enjoy I, I love it. like Breaking Bad and stuff oh, like that? Oh, you know what? It's fantastic because it lets people, whether or not it's so far removed from the truth, and of course, every drama is a sensationalized. It's sensationalized. But what these shows do a lot of the times is actually point to, um, you know, ethical problems or um, challenges with clients and the type of business that you run. And it's hyper-sensationalized, but at the same time, um, lawyers have to deal with a whole array of issues. And um, a lawyer's first obligation is to the court, a second, second obligation is to the public, and then the third obligation is to your client. So what that means is you can't lie to the court, you can't assist a client to do something which is, uh, you know, um, illegal. Um, but provided that you're not advising them on how to do something illegal, you're advising them on how to, uh, you know, m mitigate risk or reach a goal. And um, so shows like um, Suits, I think it's, it really shows even the business side of things, power dynamics. And these are, as much as they're sensationalized, they do happen. Uh, this is the context in which lawyers do operate. Um, there are enemies and adversaries. I don't have any. At least I'm not aware of any. Um, but uh, I'm not aware of any. I try to I try to play it pretty pretty nice. And I think that's being a transactional lawyer mostly. Mm -hmm. um, my litigation practice is limited limited to people who've connected with me usually in other regards. And then I'm able to take a retainer for uh, for situations that I feel are absolutely worth pursuing. Um, but um, you know, being a transactional lawyer means what's pragmatic, what's efficient. Yeah. Uh, if you ask people to defend the unreasonable, usually they fall on their face, and that's why if you really want to be a good negotiator, um, point out what's unreasonable and ask them to defend it. And it usually doesn't go so well for them. So, uh, And that's how you kind of keep people happy. You just um, you got to be neutral in some contexts. But, yeah, it's... a Suits and uh, Breaking Bad with Saul Goodman. Mm. Better Call Saul is a fantastic show. It is. Kim, Kimmy Wexler has got to be my favorite, uh, um, you know, characterization because uh, there's the one scene where she's working on a huge uh, shareholder agreement or something of that regard. It's uh, and uh, you know she drives off the road. She loses consciousness. Yeah. That's the pressure that some lawyers will place on themselves, uh, and that's a real mental health consideration. But it's every profession too. Um, it's just that lawyers have a tendency to put way too much on their plates. 
um, because the demands of the, prof- the demands of the profession are so high. Um, so I think the shows that expose those types of pressures are absolutely doing um, uh, the public uh, sort of inviting them to consider that there are some lawyers who have to, you know, deal with this type of stress. So, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think that any any sensationalization still speaks to something fundamental to to the challenges that a that a professional faces. And it all comes from a kernel of truth. Mm-hmm. Right? Most most. Uh, I think it's adaptations have some form of truth. Yeah. yeah. It's fun to end on that fictional note. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming. Where it's, can people find you if they're looking for yeah. a a great transactional? Yeah. Well, LydiardLaw.ca. Um, and uh, I'm, you know, obviously you can reach me on the website. Um, and or soon, if he plays his cards right, you'll be able to find him on YouTube. <laughs> we'll <laughs> I appreciate see. that, guys. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Yeah, my pleasure.